Hello and welcome to the New North Podcast, where we investigate the unique sounds and perspectives of exploratory musicians. My name is Joe O'Connor and I'm a member of New North's Artistic Committee, along with Andy Butler and Callum Gaffrey. New North is a platform for musicians who push boundaries in their areas of practice. This podcast is a companion to our concert series, which celebrates the amazing work of musicians and sound artists, both established and emerging, who make and present work on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Head to newnorthmusic.online for information about upcoming events, links to recordings from previous concerts, and information about our Emerging Artists Commission. You can also like New North on Facebook and follow new underscore north underscore music on Instagram for regular updates about our activities, including our upcoming concert, which is at Brunswick Mechanics Institute on September 21st. 7:30 p.m. In this episode, I'm talking to the amazing drummer and also a good friend of mine, James McLean. James presented a performance at Afterglow back in February, which was a preview of the next phase in his solo work, which he was tentatively titling Photo Book. His solo playing has gone through a number of iterations over the last 10 years or so, and um, you know what I've observed is this. Uh, this growing practice that becomes more and more specific and deep as time goes on and um, you know he really plays uh, solo drums with such amazing uh, presence and intricacy um, and um, and also in a way that relates to some some very kind of deep concepts of music making that he explored in his PhD. We cover a a number of these in the interview and I found it really interesting actually to learn uh, more about what James is doing you know, I thought I already had a pretty good idea of, uh, of his practice, but you know there was still more to be uncovered. It turns out so, um, lots of um, lots of valuable information for me in this interview. I hope you enjoy it. Well, it's a little belated, but I'm finally happy to welcome James McLean to the New North Podcast to talk about his solo drum performance from Afterglow, which was back in February. So, welcome. Thanks for having me. Happy to oh, be here. It's, it's my pleasure. And if you hear the dribbling sound, that's um, my cup of tea getting poured. We should we should probably just set the scene. Um, we're in Joe's lounge room. I'm fully dressed like a normal human being, <laughs> and Joe is looking delightful in a. I don't know what color would you say? Like a, a baby blue kind of like dressing a sky, gown. Yeah, or sky blue or something yeah. like that. Some um some UGG boots and um. It's not the first time you've seen him in this outfit. <laughs> This was my most worn outfit of um, of 2014. I remember. <laughs> I've had it for a while. Um, I used to live in an incredibly cold, cold house in, in Preston, and, and I still live in an incredibly hot, cold house in Preston. It's just a different one. It's a different house, yeah. Um, so I used to wear this all the time. Fortunately, I feel like there's a lot of incredibly cold houses in Preston. Yeah, that's right. Especially yeah. in the in the rental market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't own anything. <laughs> Um, so let's um, let's get straight into talking about some solo drums. Yep. Um, so, uh, when did you start thinking about solo drums? Um, when did I start thinking about solo drums? I think. I mean, kind of early on, uh, in my life. <laughs> no, no, early on in my life, in my kind of artistic life, um, I was really fortunate to learn from and have a kind of ongoing relationship with the great Sydney drummer Simon Barker um, who if you're not familiar with is really worth checking out but he um, 
as well as being a kind of great jazz and improvising drummer, which is how I first came to know him. He also has and, and continues really um, to have in a significant way a, a solo practice um, as, a, as a drummer. And so probably when I was about university years, so I, you know, 2008, 2010, 11-ish, when I was doing my bachelor degree, um, I studied with him and saw him play a lot and, and a number of times saw him do solo drums. So that's probably when the idea kind of first came on my radar, even though I wasn't really trying it for myself. Um, and then in 2013, uh, should I get this right? Yeah, 2013, I received a grant, a study grant to go to Japan and study with um, the great Australian percussionist composer Phil Trelaw um, and as part of that grant like it was mostly a study grant but I kind of had to have outcomes and I said oh I'd put you know the study the, the outcome of that study would be I'd come home and I'd make music for um, kind of jazz trio and for solo drums so uh, the jazz trio became the album that I put out with the band All Talk in 2014 or 15 I think 14 I believe um, and then the solo drum Thing. took me a little while longer to, to make an album, but it, that's kind of when I started doing it, at, at least occasionally, was kind of late 2013. Um, when I got back to Australia, I started performing, and, and it just became kind of a, a, a quiet part of my practice, you know, that was kind mm. of ticking away in the background, I guess I'd say. Sure, and I mean, the, the solo thing, it, it takes a long time to develop to a point where, you know, you feel really in control of it, and... and I'll, I'll let you know when I get there. It's, yeah, yeah <laughs> no, hard. for sure. It's, it's, you know, and I think, um, you know, w w what Phil and I talked about a lot when I was studying with him were these kind of more long-form compositional concerns, you know, within an improvising practice um, and ways of, of doing that, um, which still influences me and in how I improvise. But probably those early performances, I kind of felt like, maybe I was, you know, getting better at shaping a performance, but I didn't really ha know what I was trying to say. <laughs> mm. So mm. it was really when I started doing my PhD um, a couple of years later that um, I started to explore ideas around, um, you know, m movement and motion at the drum kit and also kind of an ongoing interest in, in rhythmic ideas, particularly um, as kind of practiced by... Um, a kind of kind of small lineage of, of Australian improvisers that I'm influenced by that um kind of putting those two things together gave me the kind of the the language and the mm. the ideas that I wanted to explore and then kind of putting them together with with maybe some of the ideas from Phil about shape and composition and balancing ideas that's that's kind of where I you know first landed on the the kind of practice that that I was exploring in, in those times. That's probably around 2016, 17. Sure. And I'm assuming that the improvisers you're talking about are Simon, but also Scott Tinkler and Mark Hannaford. And Th that's right, you know, yeah. The work they were doing with John Rogers and Ken Eady. That's, well. tr that's true, yeah. Kind of all, all those people. So the, um, <laughs> if we go down this path, I could get very, very talkative. But um, yeah, the kind of the, the rhythmic practices of yeah, the people you mentioned, you know, Phil Trelaw and Mark Simmons in the early days, leading on to influences of um, Scott Tinkler and Simon Barker and also um, Ken Eady, um, 
Rogers and then into into Mark Hannaford, who, you know, when I was my early twenties I was part of his band for about three years, which is kind of where I, I learned a lot of these things and where that that seed was planted for me. Hmm. Yeah. Um I mean I don't think anyone on, on the podcast previously has actually talked about that particular part of um, Melbourne's improvised world over the last sure. couple of decades. So maybe it is something we could um, delve into a little bit. Sure. Well, I, I, I mean, I would say it's more of a kind of East Coast Australian improvised world. East Coast, it? West Coast, you know, Perth and <laughs> West Coast. They're, they're cool. Right? Well, they're cool. Uh, well, it's nothing, nothing against Perth. But I'm, <laughs> I'm just in my, in these lineage of people, I can... We love Perth. I can think of, I love Perth. We're all, we're all going to Perth, you know. Um, Love mining. But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I can think of people who were based at one time or another in Sydney, in Melbourne, in Brisbane, even in, um, you know, kind of Byron Bay kind of way, and, you know, that part of New South Wales. Um, but I'm not aware of anyone really exploring these ideas in other parts of Australia, you know, Adelaide and Perth and, mm. and well, I mean, wherever, wherever else, but, but that, that could be my oversight. Um, ideas are just ideas. They're not really tied to a place I don't think but um yeah I guess so I mean the kind of specifically talking about the rhythmic um ideas um I mean there's a lot to say I this was one of the ideas that I kind of explored and wrote about as part of my PhD as well and and in that form kind of an academic form I I kind of dubbed it um Antripodean improvising after the Antripodean collective which was um group that was around for a few years which was you know to repeat these names um scott tinkler mark hannaford ken Eady, and john rogers mm, but um, but also paul grabowski was on their first album true well. but well, that, that but it seems like they sort of found their identity a little bit later y- on yeah well my understanding was i mean it gets kind of complicated but i think it was um it was kind of a, a produced session originally by um i'm not sure of his name but the guy who ran extreme records Mm. He had this idea of the Antripodean Collective, which which he kind of set up. And there was a couple of different albums under that name. But then there was this one quartet, which was on one of those recordings. But then they also started doing a bit of touring and playing and, and recording um, outside of that record label under that name. Mm. So they kind of mm. took that name then and did their own thing. So I guess that's that's specifically what I'm referring to as that quartet. Mm. Um, which, yeah, the they improvisational practice I kind of thought of as the the most... Um, <laughs> extreme but also the kind of most um, pure expression of this form of improvising not to mm. say it's the, the best I mean it's really great but it's not yeah. saying it's better or worse but just it's the most it's... kind of pure of these ideas that I was yeah. trying to express which is um, you know kind of a I'm, I'm trying to think back to what I said when I researched this it's been a few years but um, you know like a kind of any any improvisational approach that um has you know instrumentally like very much gets away from any sense of instrumental role playing um Mm. which obviously like there is a factor of many improvisations but but you know this this is kind of a a series of characteristics that i identified um Mm. i'm trying to remember what the other ones were like the the improvising the rhythmic practice really was to do with this kind of um, sorry, I'm trying to be very precise with my language and it's a bit early on a Sunday morning but uh, no one else tries to be precise <laughs> with their language on this podcast uh, so. sorry <laughs> um, so it, it was uh, like the kind of, the, kind of improv- the rhythmic approach sorry I should say is 
you know, very kind of um, e- giving equal weight to, um, you know, kind of all, all subdivisions and being very, um, oh, I'm searching for a word and I'm just kind of blanking on it, but, you know, kind of never really giving any clear sense of, you know, pulse or anything like that, like mm. very, very strong rhythms, but, mm. you know, with, with like a lot of articulation and, and clear rhythmic flow, um, it's not kind of free rhythm in that way, mm. but, um, but you know, being kind of constantly playing off each other's rhythms in ways that just make it increasingly complex and mm. um, mysterious. Um, and and I, sp- I, I suppose you know, um, my listening to that music sort of suggests that pulse pulse is kind of a very important part of it but not in a metrical sense not in beats so you're that's not right. going to be like tapping along with it that's um, right and so what you know what i kind of learned when i was playing with mark and then i met you know and like you met and studied a little bit with with scott and tinkler and you know met ken Eady and john rogers and all that kind of more briefly but um you know a lot of what they would do is they had these very highly developed um rhythmic languages which they shared they did share so it was kind of yeah i guess you'd say indian inspired mm, um you yeah. know lots of like number grouping patterns and a real comfort in all subdivisions kind of from you know quavers to um non-uplets so you know from mm. two two to nine in the beat you know i'm gonna not not feeling like you know mostly triplets or semi-quavers like a more standard western music or whatever it's like really feeling comfortable in quintuplets septuplets those mm. kind of subdivisions playing these grouping patterns that you know give have these real polyrhythmic element to them but then um so when they're improvising you know they might hear someone play something so let's say it was in the performer a played um you know semi-quavers grouped in fives you know scabba didn't the gabba 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 didn't sorry that's just quintuplets gabba didn't gabba didn't gabba didn't gabba didn't gabba didn't like i said early on sunday um and it might be a matter of you know with just hearing that that rhythm they may deliberately treat that as rather than semiquavers grouped in five as quintuplets mm. and then off that pulse play triplets grouped in five mm. <laughs> so you yeah. have these kind of like overlapping relationships of rhythm that are kind of like it's almost like a game you know mm. built off each other to make these incredibly complex relationships that Know, the kind of things you might see in you know new, new complexity works or whatever mm. but it's it's entirely improvised and it's really not about being together it's almost like deliberately being um uh, obfuscational that's the word i was searching for. yeah so right. it's like this kind of real obfuscational approach to rhythm where it's like really you know and they practice doing these things together you know so that in the performance they can do them not together <laughs> yeah it's but, but i suppose you know um the, the example you gave like if if you're playing a stream of semi-quavers and you're accenting every fifth one as someone who's listening without your sense of internal pulse hmm. um there's not really a clear way of, of differentiating between quintuplets at a slow pulse and, well you know, yeah that, that that's um, totally right and i mean that's and it doesn't really matter actually. it does and that's yeah. and that's exactly right doesn't doesn't really matter but yeah just this kind of funny thing that i'd never had encountered before and, mm. and still is kind of rare which is this idea very of like rare, yeah. having a very refined language of whatever form whether it's you know, rhythmic or harmonic or whatever but with the kind of explicit goal of having a refined shared language to not do it together <laughs> 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 which is kind of like 
I mean, to, I, to be fair though, like if maybe not that group specifically, but if you look at some of the collaborations between members of that group, I think mm. the relationship between some of those rhythmic ideas does sync up a bit more. You know, so sure, yeah. like um, like Scott Tinkler's um, duo with Simon Barker for me, that has a lot more of those elements, which actually do. That's true. Yeah. I mean, not that Simon Barker is part of that group, you know, um, but uh, some of those same rhythmic processes, but with more of a, a kind of uh, grounded kind of. That, beat, that's, beat, if you like. that's true yeah no for sure and i you know that's why um you know the, the idea in, in, the, in my in my research at least was kind of giving a bunch of these kind of characteristics and and saying like i said i thought that quintet sorry, quartet was the most kind of pure representation of this idea but mm. most thing most you know works um kind of had some elements of it but not necessarily all of them or mm. as you as you point out a slightly different focus yeah. um no, I, I, yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, and it is outside of, say, a particular tradition like the South Indian Carnatic tradition. Um, it's just rare to have a group of musicians who all worked hard enough to get good at that stuff, you know. Like, I, I gave it a crack. I thought it was a bit too hard. <laughs> I just sort of, yeah. you know, went in different directions. But I think that's pretty common experience, right? Like, even very capable musicians, you really have to want to do it at an incredibly high level mm. and with a great deal of intensity to even develop the skills that they had uh, well, or have. Yeah, I mean, I kind of think, you know, it's funny, like I, I remember years ago having a conversation with Simon um, and so for him, when he was quite young, I think about his mid-twenties, he was um, asked to be part of the Mark Simmons Free Boppers for a couple of years, which was, you know, a very famous and influential Australian jazz group some some listeners may be aware of them already maybe not but they you know they only ever produced one recording but they were kind of really quite prolific for i think a decade or so from the kind of mid 80s to mid 90s and um and i remember talking to simon you know at some point and he was kind of showing me these things and some of these kind of early versions of these rhythmic ideas and he was kind of telling me how you know <laughs> when he was in the band he was really struggling and he kind of did his best and, and did okay but you know 10 to 15 years later the the kind of the questions artistic questions that 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 experience had left with him he kind of finally felt like oh i could do it now <laughs> mm. and and i kind of remember that because i i think i have a lot of similar feelings about my experience with with mark Hannaford and because i was in his band kind of in my oh, i think i would have been 19 20 21 you know kind of that age mm. when i when i joined for, for about three years in my early early 20s if not my very late teens when i joined and you know getting given these pieces with you know their kind of long form you know um mm. long form rhythmic compositions in you know with quintuplets and stuff and mm, they're these, very hard the, the, yeah really <laughs> really, really hard <laughs> and i worked really hard to be able to play them and, and i you know and i do feel you know quite happy with how I performed on the, the one album we made, but yeah, the band sounds great. Yeah, it's not it's not like you let the team down. Yeah, no, <laughs> thank you. Great. But um, but in a similar way, I feel like you know the kind of questions that that experience left with me. You know, now I'm 32. I'm kind of 10 years on from about 10 years on from the end of the band, nine years from the end of the band. And even though I've made this other work, and and that in some ways a lot of the things I work on and, and think about is still just like try to try to be able to play that music as well like you know because mm. even though i would probably never happen again it's like in my mind it's like well i'd love to i'd love to do it now because i reckon mm. i'd sound really good <laughs> yeah. and i'd really you know like i'd really be able to play it um mm. 
So, so um, yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing. Those kind of early, I guess those the 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 marks those um, excuse the pun, but the marks those kind of formative experiences leave on you, mm. and how they kind of shape your um, not just your interests, but kind of the 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 goals and the questions you kind of you're trying to answer through your practice, I guess. Mm. Mm. Um. And I suppose I, you know, I'm interested in, as well as in maybe um, without being able to continue some of these collaborations, just for practical reasons, you know, Mark moving to the United States yeah. and, um, and, you know, Scott, um, Scott Tinkler not playing so many jazz gigs for quite a, a lot of years and focusing sure. more on free improv and, um, and then moving to Tassie, you yeah. know, the, those people who still have that skill set who were in Melbourne are now no longer here. So, yeah. I mean, is, is the solo playing... Um, has that become a way of you continuing to extend on on um, what you started developing there? Oh, absolutely, yeah. No, I mean, like I said, you know, for for the first couple of albums that I that I made, you know, the the rhythmic um, ideas were kind of a core part of what I was what I was exploring. Um, it sounds like they still are. Just going to put it out. Well, there. well, I think Sorry. I think now it's at a point where um, because I've been you know, interested in that. In, interested in these ideas for so long and, and working on them for so long that um unless given a reason not to <laughs> you know like mm. being put in a musical context where you know everything's in 4-4 and you're a Tasmanian Clovers which a lot mm. of musical contexts are but you know if I kind of have the open uh, the, the, the blank page of a of a solo performance then yeah I mean those ideas are just things that I I think about and I hear and I you know I kind of imagine and hear now and, and I'm kind of always exploring and they're also just kind of, you know, embodied things now. You know, a lot of my, um, you know, interest in, in music and and performances to do with, um, you know, embodied cognition, which I don't know, you know, Joe, but the listeners may not. You know, like, which is kind of this this idea that um, rather than a a kind of dualist perspective of like, you know, the the, the body being this kind of um, empty shell and the brain being the kind of controller where everything actually happens that um you know our, our body and the relationship between our body to the world actually actually shapes how we perceive things and how we think about things and, and kind of frames frames and shapes our experience a lot more than we we recognize a lot of the time um so you know for me now a lot of those those kind of rhythmic ideas and, and the the associated techniques um are just part of the the physical experience of playing the drums for me mm. and i mean that makes total sense to me because um you know particularly the last um last couple of years i spent a lot of time practicing instruments other than the piano which is mm. what i can improvise quite well on yeah um and um uh and on the piano you know harmonically i can sort of visualize all of this stuff yeah. and i can just play stuff and my you know my hands follow the sounds in my head but if I try to improvise in a slightly uncomfortable, you know, yep. it might be like a different key or uh, a key that doesn't get played in that much or, or just a, a bit of a tricky progression mm. on the trombone, I just, uh, it's terrible. <laughs> like I, ba I basically just can't do it. Um, and, and I think, you know, different, different instruments probably require a different type of visualization or a different type of hearing. Mm. And, and of course, then that has to be synced up with an intuitive response with very different physical movements. And, yeah. um, and so it's, it's an a odd experience in a way to know that I can do all these things at a very high level, 
that my brain feels blank yeah. when, I, when I try. Like, I, you know, I just can't, I kind of can't do it yeah, at all, you know, yeah. on these other instruments. Very, very bizarre, um, particularly. Um, yeah, there's there's a kind of, re- there's an idea in, in literature, like, called um, situated cognition, which is very closely related to embodied cognition. But the whole idea of situated cognition is just that there's, you know, types of intelligence and, and ways of thinking that are only unlocked in certain situations. Mm. So I think we all know people who, who operate in that way. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we all do. That's, <laughs> that's, no, that's, that's the thing, you know. Um, and yeah, so so some people just seem, you know, like geniuses in one context and then you talk to them in another and you're like, geez, you're barely functional. You know? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think the, the classic example is, um, this is going to be a little bit loose on the details, but there's, there's some famous study about... Um, it's like like packers at a um you know like like packing trucks or packing, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, shipping yeah. containers and stuff like that and the people who who do that and um and these people who are kind of not to be rude at all but they're just kind of factory workers that mm-hmm. they're not like super highly trained or mm-hmm. or um you know done lots of degrees or whatever like outside yeah. of just working on this job for a long time and then you know kind of in the 90s and the 2000s you know the people started you know they started writing you know kind of software to kind of do this job for them mm. and i don't know whether it's still like this but for a long time even with this you know very fancy software it was still not as efficiently done as these people really? <laughs> and when they tried yeah. to interview them and kind of say like what do you what do you do like what are your strategies and what do you what are you thinking through um you know the probably the ulterior motive of replacing them with software and machines mm. but lots of them couldn't actually put into words at all what mm. they were doing they were just kind of go well i just look at the stuff and you know i've been doing this for a while so i know that that should go first and that should go there and it's kind of like 3d tetris i guess yeah uh, and they'd say so, you know these people through through you know working in this job for 10 years or 20 years or whatever it is like they kind of developed this very specialized mm. incredibly high level skill set mm. for this for this task that you know, wouldn't be picked up on like say an IQ test or whatever. You know, yeah. a, a general yeah. No, I know, I know what you mean. It's just this. There's they've got this thing and they can do it. I mean, even mm-hmm. on a much <laughs> kind of reminds me even on a much less highly developed lesson level. I I find it funny that the the last thing I do on on my teaching week is like I have to get these kids to pack up a classroom, and they just have <laughs> to like put tables back and chairs behind the tables. That's all that's involved. Yeah. But like watching them do it is really frustrating because I've, I've seen them struggle with all this stuff and they're like it won't work this and then i just go over there and just go Boop, it's fixed, you know and it's just like uh, uh i don't know i suppose you just kind of develop the ability to just like assess the situation very quickly and know how to fix yeah. it and and, yeah. um, and you're right it's not about intelligence but gee it's mind-blowing to watch yeah yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah so um, um so um one actually I, I want to touch on something that i know that we've talked about before um from your research and just because mm-hmm. i think it's a, a an interesting idea and something that maybe doesn't get talked about all that much in terms of practice but the idea of um practicing um for emergence sure yeah yeah um, oh, okay <laughs> no. i thought i'd raise this because um, that's good it's you good. know I, I was reflecting on this um I, you know uh, in a teaching context as well, I'm often talking to much younger students about, um, uh, you know, how do you practice well? And often yeah. it's incredibly goal-directed and yeah. task-oriented. And um, for them to practice efficiently, they have to stop messing around and focus and know what they want to achieve. Yeah. But 
once you reach a, a certain threshold, often if you want to discover new ideas, you actually have to set up a situation or an approach to practice that yep. actually doesn't have the end goal in sight, but allows other things to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, f for me, what, what I've kind of found over time, at least what works for me is, you know, like kind of practicing towards emergence kind of comes from, you talk about like setting up a space, it's like um, being much more process driven rather than rather than goal oriented, like you said. So, you know, the idea of goal oriented, obviously we kind of have these bigger goals, like maybe a performance or a recording or whatever, but, or, you know, or just like a project, I want to make music with these people or this thing, but um, even just on a much smaller level, the idea of like, I am, you know, imagining this kind of sound and I want to produce it is a, is a goal that is directed. And that's not saying you, nothing wrong with being goal directed. It's not saying it's, that's bad or wrong or whatever, but, but the idea of emergence, you know, is kind of, you know, and like I said, you know, being process oriented is, is kind of just flipping an approach to, you know, in, in the practice room or maybe in a rehearsal space or whatever it is with by yourself with people is just saying, well, you know, what if we do this thing, you know, whatever that thing is and experiment within this kind of, you know, this, this process, this framework. And, you know, f at least for a while, like don't judge what happens at all. Just mm. let things happen. And, and yeah, that's and the hard bit. Ex exactly. Exactly. You know, especially, and I think in fun some ways it kind of can get harder the further on you go because you can kind of feel like, well, I'm an established or I'm a good musician or whatever that means. You know, I should make things that sound good. Um, but so giving yourself that space. So, yeah, I mean, so there's been a few, you know, f few ways in which I've, I've done this and, and it's something that I think more and more I try to do. Um, you know, so yeah, I mean, I mentioned a couple of times this, this idea of, you know, embodied cognition. So when I kind of encountered this idea a few years ago, um, you know, I kind of embarked upon a, a, a project and a, and a way of, practicing and playing which was kind of thinking well what if what if movement and the kind of physical relationship between the drums and, and my body is the first um <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> what what if what if that is the kind of is the parameter that i vary mm. and then i'll just see what that sounds like for a while um and and so for, for me, the kind of way that I did it, and you could do this in a bunch of different ways with that, you know, it's a very open-ended idea, but, you know, for me, I was kind of playing in a way where I was thinking about shapes on the drum kit, you know, circles and lines and, um, you know, changing direction or um, how my different arms, you know, my two arms would, would relate if one of them's, one of them's playing a line, the other one's playing a circle, what does that sound like? You know, trying all these different things. Um, and it, they kind of seem like simple ideas, but then, when you start to really explore them and apply them, they can kind of expand in a lot of different ways. And, mm. um, and what I kind of, what emerged for me out of that was less about, you know, I found these 10 little patterns that I love, or I did find some that I kind of built pieces around and, and did that thing, but was also kind of some more general processes around, you know, if I I'm doing things at different rates or the same rate or whatever they kind of have these certain kinds of sounds and feelings and and so ways of manipulating ideas through through movement which i probably wouldn't have expected to emerge mm. um mm. 
Yeah, it seems to me like that's a, a really important part of the solo practice, you know. Um, and I'm thinking of, of uh, I suppose that you can even hear that on the earlier ones a little bit, but but yeah. particularly, you know, the the most recent performance at New North, um, there are a lot of those sort of cycles. You know, you can kind of see them visually that that the the way they translate musically often is these sort of different different pulses or different groupings sort of drifting across each other. So sort yep. of kind of very grounded in a pulse, but with this kind of level of rub, I suppose, or, you know, ambiguity that's coming out yeah, of it as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's, and like I said, you know, without getting into the real details of it, you know, that's kind of one thing I really noticed is, you know, if you have, let's say, you know, your left hand and your right hand are doing things, <laughs> little, you know, movement patterns, um, you know, if they're kind of moving at the same rate, then they sound like a unified pattern, you know? Mm you know mm. but then once one of them is just moving at a slightly different rate you get this kind of phasing effect and, mm. it, and it and it quickly becomes very complex um mm. the relationship and and um you know one of the great joys i had when i was practicing this is you know getting into some of those um spaces where i could kind of consciously understand well my left hand's playing this drum this drum and that cymbal or whatever and my right hand's going here 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 here, here. but because I was thinking on this physical level and I guess kind of a rhythmic level as well. But then I, they were kind of creating this complex relationship. Um, it was creating this kind of combined effect that was much more complex than I could kind of audiate and imagine mm, in my yeah, mind. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I had this kind of, there was, you know, definitely times where, you know, I was, would sit down in the practice room and do these things and it was like, I had this bizarre experience of being obviously the player and the performer. Jeez, oh, I'm great. <laughs> well, always no, uh, but you know, having being the performer, but also being like an audience member and a listener, because I, I wasn't imagining the the complexity of the sound, and I wasn't mm. expecting it. And there would be relationships and little melodies and little, you know, yeah, things that would emerge that would genuinely surprise me mm. as I was doing them. <laughs> and, and I imagine you'd have to be have a certain level of control over them already, though, before you had the headspace to listen like that, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, a lot of these things, you know, I just would sit on for kind of quite long periods of time. 10, just... 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> uh, but, you know, yeah, it might be 15 minutes just like with a couple of small things and just making these small adjustments that change, like I said, the way those relationships kind of phase in and out. And, yeah, it was kind of, it's like, it's almost like, you know, like a kind of, setting some little, you know, little machines going or something, even though they're mm. my arms, mm. <laughs> setting these little machines going and kind of just letting them interact in this way and, and kind of letting yourself be surprised by them. So that's, mm. yeah, I mean, obviously it's not just kind of one way of performing. There's a lot of situations where you do want to have the, the skill and the ability to kind of, you know, have a, have a sound in your mind and, and um, mm. actualize it. But, but it's a very fun other way to do something as well. Mm. Um, so, um, because this this solo development has been such a long term process, and I suppose yep. it's been documented on your album, so Counterclockwork and Oscillator and Interstitial, um, and now this most recent phase, which I think you you said you'd tentatively titled it Photo Book um, <laughs> yeah. at, the, at the time of the performance. Um, how has um, how's the approach evolved? Do you think you know how how do you think Photo Book represents maybe the most developed of of those expressions? Um. I'm not sure where the photo book does represent the most developed, <laughs> except that there's the most development time. Um, for me, photo book is kind of a working title of 
a new stage where I'm trying to, uh, I mean, yeah, I think, I think this ties in well with what you were asking about emergence and, and process. You know, I was talking about process where, you know, I'm trying to change, I'm just kind of going to a new phase where I'm changing the process by which I'm making works, um, or at least exploring alternative processes. Um, and so probably for the time being, the kind of, the, the content is kind of similar <laughs> or a development of because that's that's the language I have and, and maybe that will will change over time I guess we'll find out but um you know yeah so kind of thinking about the the recordings I've made you know counter clockwork was the first one about 2016 or 17 I think which was maybe 16 um and that was kind of you know my first exploration of these ideas I kind of had some that you know the ideas I've been talking about about movement and rhythm and, and those ideas um, I had some pieces that were quite, um, I, mean, I never notated anything, but they were really quite composed. Like a really, it seemed like it. Yeah. 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 And then some, some improvisations, um, oscillator, which was my second one, which was 2018 or 2019, I think 2018. Um, that in, in my mind was the kind of the, the pu purest expression of those ideas. You know, it was kind of a 25 minute piece, you know, kind of split into four tracks on the album, but essentially mm -hmm. one, one piece. Was that the one that was at the end of your PhD, or was that interesting? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So that was kind of the end of the PhD, um, and and so naturally it kind of ended up being like a pretty. I've been really exploring those ideas for a number of years, um, and it kind of ended up being a, a like a, I think a fairly pure representation of those. Uh, interstitial, kind of as the as the name suggests, was is a kind of a bit of a in between album. So that was. Um, all improvised actually I um, it was kind of just a, a by chance thing where I had been making another recording and I with with, some, with someone else and um, we were happy with what we'd done and I had about half a day left in the studio in Sydney so I just thought I'll, I'll play some solo drums and if I like it I'll put it out and if I don't then no one has to hear it and mm. and I was really happy with a lot of the stuff and, and what I thought was kind of listening back to that was kind of interesting was that obviously a lot of those ideas that I'd been exploring were there but it was also in a much looser form um you know they, they were really there because that's just part of my improvising language now but i wasn't and i don't think it's as good or bad but i wasn't maybe as restricted to really exploring these things mm. as, as i had been on the previous two um so some other other things came in that i that i really enjoyed um and that was in 2019 and then obviously the pandemic hit and <laughs> um you know different people had different experiences but that wasn't the most creative time for me but um you know i put out that album and and but I, I called it interstitial because it felt to me like it was kind of an in-between. You know, it was kind of, it had a lot of those ideas I'd been exploring, but it was looking towards the next thing and, and mm. letting other ideas come in. Um, so then, you know, this year, kind of late late last year, 2021, and then early this year, um, I've, I've been kind of ruminating on, on where to go next. Because, um, you know, I, I'm not going to kind of throw away all my stuff and pretend I don't know those ideas or like those ideas but i wanted to give myself a different way of um thinking about making works rather than just mm. doing the same thing and trying to do it better or, or more more of yeah. more is more you know more of the same thing or whatever make it harder i don't know yeah uh, and i was trying to think about what kind of yeah i guess you know my my interest in process maybe more so than just um just outcome or goal um I was, I was kind of ruminating on what, how I might change my process um, to, to see what happened. And so, um, 
over the last number of years, I've become quite interested in um, photography, um, particularly kind of street or documentary photography, um, more so than kind of, you know, posed or fashion or whatever you say. Um, and um, a bit of, bit of a hobbyist, but, but, you know, just kind of really enjoying discovering other, you know, new artists and new, new art that, that was outside of my realm of kind of awareness. Um, and over time, kind of becoming more aware of not just the, the works themselves, the photos, but also the kind of the process that goes into it. And, and kind of thinking about that and listening to, you know, listening to or reading interviews with photographers, it just kind of struck me how, how different the, obviously it's a different art form, but how different the process is, you know? Mm. And I was thinking about how in music, what I've experienced, and I think what a lot of people experience is this kind of thing of the, the documentation comes last so mm. you know whether it's you improviser or and i'm not saying it's for everybody but certainly for me i think probably a lot of people is you know you if you're developing something you kind of you spend a lot of time in the practice room or composing or whatever it is or you know just ruminating on it and thinking about how to do it and then you you know whatever your process is you know you kind of make the works and you maybe you perform them and you kind of you try to refine them or get them as good as they can be and then and then you'll go into the studio or whatever it is and you'll, and you'll record it. And, and you may obviously perform it after that, but it's kind of once it's documented, that's almost like it's, it's, a, it's a flower that's it's bloomed. A, it's arrived, yeah. <laughs> it's and, arrived. And, and I think some, you know, some, I'm sure this applies for visual artists working in other mediums as well, but certainly for some musicians, um, they're very cagey about anyone seeing their work until it's ready, you know. Um, yeah. Because it might not be amazing yet. Yeah. Know? So, you know, what I was kind of ruminating on with photography, and I think the, the very nature of it is that, you know, the very nature of photography is that you, you, you are documenting, like, a shitload all the time. <laughs> it's just, you know, like, you, you don't... I mean, obviously, different photographers have different processes, but at least the ones I was becoming interested in and, and my experience as a, as a hobbyist was that, you know, you, you take a lot of photos and then you kind of edit judiciously. And maybe even if, you know, listening to some interviews with some really serious artists, like, you know, if they find something they like, but it's not quite there, then they'll go back and revisit that material and, and rework it. And there's a, a story that I really like from um, a great um, Australian photographer named Trent Park, who's one of my, my favourites and a really incredible photographer. Um, and he has this quite well-known pho pho photograph, um, which is kind of a street photograph in, from the streets of Sydney, CBD. And it's black and white, it's dark black and white. And it's this amazing photograph with this kind of like um, ghostly bus. So it's kind of like a slow shutter speed. So it's this rather than just a fixed bus, it's kind of, you know, it's spread across the frame. Um, but just something about the way, like there's kind of like, it's obviously like late afternoon or early morning. So there's kind of like light on the coming through. And there's this amazing thing where the, the bus is kind of stretched out and ghostly. But then there's these figures of people on the sidewalk um, I feel like an American footpath <laughs> uh, with the light behind them kind of making them silhouetted, but then they're kind of silhouetted into this ghostly bus and it just kind of looks incredible and magical. Mm. And you kind of like, how does that even, how does that even happen? You know, like mm. I don't, it, mm. you, it's not something you see with your eyes. It's, it's, it's something you can kind of only get with the, the kind of the nature and the magic of photography. Um, but I, I heard this interview, I read this interview with, with Trent Park and he got asked about that photo because it's quite a well-known one. And they're kind of saying, you know, how did you, how did you even think to do that? And how did you do it? And, um, and he had this story about it and he said that, you know, he was in a phase of his life where he was taking a lot of photos in Sydney CBD. And 
at one stage he um, took a photo that had something of that effect. It wasn't the, the final one, but it was you know, had a little bit of this kind of ghostly bust and some figures, and he thought, wow, that's a really amazing look, but this, this photo isn't that good as a photo. Kind of mm-hmm. He's like, but I want to explore that. And so he kind of he figured out that, you know, I can't remember if it's the same street corner. He, he got it on originally, or he found a better one where like the light was on the right angle and the sun at sunset. And he kind of figured out that there was about six weeks of the year where, you know, due to the Jeez. kind of natural <laughs> movement of the earth, the sun would come through the streets at the right angle and there was enough yeah. buses and stuff. And there was, so there was about, you know, depending on the time of year, there was about six weeks and, you know, give or take 30 to 40 minutes of the day where the sun was in exactly the right spot. Mm. And he said, you know, for those six weeks of that year he went there every day um at that time and mm. he took about a roll of film every time mm. um and he didn't get it so he did his life and then the next yeah, year the same the kind of year. <laughs> he came back and he did it. and i can't remember exactly what it is but it's like you know it's like three years over time where he came Jeez. back and he was trying to get this photo i want to see this photo now it's amazing yeah and 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 he's you know he finally you know and he's kind of like black and white so he's self-developing it so every night he'd go home and self-develop and and look at the negatives at least without maybe not printing them but you know to see if he got it Mm. and then you know after however many days you know probably you know a couple hundred days over years and and Mm. thousands and thousands of photos trying to get this photo um you know he finally got it Mm. (laughs) and he he went yeah cool that's it and he's like never went back (laughs) But I was just ruminating on this oh, idea. That's I mean, so brutal. Yeah, it's, but it's like it's a really it's an incredible photo, and and I was you know obviously that's like a story of kind of you know real commitment and the kind of the madness of a great artist. But also, I was kind of ruminating on this idea of like you know rather than kind of work workshopping stuff and composing and improvising and developing until mm. you document. It's like, yeah, yeah right. Yeah, uh, the way you describe it, it, it um, I mean, it's exactly right, but. Um, I wouldn't have even known that was a bus. I don't think. Like, right? Yeah. 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 That's quite amazing. Um, Maybe you can put it on your Instagram or something. You know, credit to. Uh, I don't know. Photo credit to Trent Park. I don't know if that's allowed. Is it? I don't know. We'll um, find out. Anyway, but but I was I was ruminating on you know that story, but also just you know other things about photography and 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 you know and so like that's a fairly extreme story for one photo, but you know it's really common for you know, a photo book of 70 to 80 photos for artists to take 10,000 or more photos. You know, mm. like they make a lot of photos, a lot of them often of similar or the same subject matter, and then they kind of edit really fucking hard. Mm. <laughs> like, it's really mm. brutal editing. And I, and obviously, you know, there's kind of a financial aspect of like, well, I, you know, I don't own a studio, I can't be recording myself every day, but the idea of a photo book for me was to kind of come a bit closer to that way of doing it, of, of making a lot of documents and reflecting on them, maybe re-examining material I liked, but I didn't feel was quite there um, with the goal of making something really good in the long run. So um, I imagine this will be kind of a long, long-term project. Maybe mm. that will make one album or maybe we'll make many or something. Mm. I'm not sure. But you have to make ten thousand albums just to, to release those seventy <laughs> across your lifetime. Well, well, maybe I'll record ten thousand albums and, <laughs> and make one that's really good. But um, but yeah, so 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 like I mentioned, um, interstitial, the album I made in twenty nineteen, um, was all improvised, and so for the performance, um, in February at the New North, you know, one of the main ideas I explored in that performance was some some kind of rhythmic ideas that had emerged in that in, in that um 
session, for instance, this year, so there's a track on there, I'm kind of blanking on the name of it right now, but um, there's, a sh- there's a short track with some kind of rhythmic ideas that I, you know, like I said, kind of fall under my hands now, but but expressed in a certain way that, that I hadn't done before ever, and I just improvised on the day, and listening back to it, I really enjoyed and felt they were, they were very mysterious, but but also felt like I could, you know, go much further with them. So, mm. you know, that's that's one part of it. Um, another part of the, the performance, you know, like the start of it with these kind of textural timbral ideas, you know, with kind of mm. bells and with, you know, kind of bells with shells in them and, and you know, the bells kind of r- rattling on the sides of the tongs and stuff. You know, I um, about a month or so prior to the performance, I'd gone into the studio of my friend um, James Gilligan, who... Um, yeah, has a great little studio in in Brunswick, and and I'd gone in for an evening as the kind of start of this project with no explicit plan, no material prepared, and the idea just to improvise, um, and and see what happened, and maybe nothing worthwhile would happen, but maybe there were some ideas in there that were cool, and and you know why I kind of had the night, and we we recorded some stuff, and most of it was crap but because <laughs> there was no plan but but at some point through experimentation and and the kind of just need to be creating stuff i kind of stumbled upon this idea and and you know put the shells and the bell and the tom and 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 was hitting it with a mallet and then it kind of came across onto the, the edge of the tom and there was this like bizarrely complex sound from this little setup that i that i kind of really liked and mm. and so then i kind of built a, a little idea around that and so um you know, so that was another idea you know that's that for me is like the you know in the studio i take that first photo where there's a bit of a ghostly bus that it's not there yet mm, but mm. but i can explore that further and again maybe then rather than being um you know explored through just like refining in the practice room and then i'll go to the studio once it's ready it's like well you know i've done the performance with new north and you know, that was great that that was recorded and videoed. So, you know, I, I have watched that, but I'll kind of, you know, reflect on that, um, listen more closely and reflect on that and think about where those ideas can go. And, mm. you know, there's also like a sec- from the memory a section in the middle of the performance in February that was not either of those like, main ideas that I kind of had with me that I was mm. planning on performing. And I just, you know, left space to improvise between and that probably drew more closely on the material of my, my previous albums, but... Mm. not entirely <laughs> so yeah so yeah so it's kind of just trying to change you know so yeah so photo books like a, a working title for me but it's just for me it's about trying to change the process with which i make work to to document more frequently mm. and reflect on those and and not, not be afraid to revisit and refine ideas yeah, look, later in your career, you're going to have to release the James McLean archive, you know, all of this archival material, and people can look at your recordings and they can say, well, this is the, this is, this is its lineage and this is where it started. And That's right. Um, so there's the... a PhD for someone else in there, I reckon. But, yeah, um, not, not for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not for me either. Yeah. Um, what, I, what I was going to come back to, though, and, and you sort of um, alluded to this earlier, is that this type of process is, that you're, you're talking about um i think particularly as people get older and busier it's really hard to um to create that sort of space in an ensemble you know certainly something i mean i i don't really work with any jazz ensembles anymore and i think Mm. part of it part of it is that i don't particularly like working in in a way where like you have a rehearsal and then you've got to smash it out for the gig 
and you know you're working with great musicians so it would be good but for me it leaves me a bit cold you know it's like it never gets to sure never gets to sort of find itself or something like that yeah i think you know it's, it's a funny thing i think a lot about um i read uh, not all but sections of a great book called um art worlds by howard saul becker when i was doing my phd and um he has this idea about conventions that i really like and i think about a lot which is um uh, that a, like a convention essentially is the the the, the established and shared practices by which art is made efficiently and easily. <laughs> mm, efficiency and easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that, you know, but like that's basically the idea. And and he has this other kind of related idea about like value of art and basically he says like, you know, anything that like follows all the conventions will be regarded as pretty boring. Mm. <laughs> anything that follows none of the conventions will be regarded as like, well, it's not even the art form. Yeah. You yeah, know? Yeah. And I'm sure in many forms, I mean classic, you know, it's like a classic thing for someone to say oh that's not jazz you know like yeah, that's yeah, yeah. So it's kind of you know that that yeah. commentary but 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 it kind of made me think about where that notion comes from a bit more and I, I tend to agree with that idea it's like you know mm. whoever's making that statement feels like too many of the we'll call them conventions but too many of like the the things that make jazz jazz have been broken this is no longer jazz yeah, yeah. you know whatever it is this is no yeah. longer and there is certainly that sort of old, old jazz policey sort of attitude yeah. where it's like if you if you step outside of um, certain gatekeepers idea of what you should and shouldn't be doing then yeah, yeah you might find that certain opportunities begin to disappear for you and that sort of stuff you know? yeah and, I mean and to some degree I mean like I know there are jazz police but to some degree it's like well maybe that's fair enough like maybe if mm. you go too far out then you are not doing this thing anymore yeah, that this sure. opportunity has been established for or that you know the audiences are interested in then maybe you are going you know I feel certainly like my solo practice you know like as a as a musician, I'm probably most established and most experienced in the jazz world. Mm. Um, hopefully, people could hear my quotation air marks, quotes. my air quotes, yeah. if it, actually you can't see them. But um, but you know, this solo stuff that I've been doing, you know, it's been something challenging for me. Is like it doesn't really land in that world because it's not mm. of you know, like there's there's links, but it's really not of that that style yeah. of that world. Well, I, and know, so there's yeah. not much you know, not that much interested in it. And that's you know, well, you have to create your own. Yeah, and to be honest, like, doesn't, doesn't kind of bother me that much in some ways. Like yeah. sometimes I'm like, oh, it would be really nice if blah blah blah. But it's like, but also, yeah, I mean, that's it's so different to what so much of that music is, and mm. you know, so where does where does it kind of live? But yeah, um, but it also it might not actually feel right in a jazz context. You know, if you play this in a jazz club, it might it just I don't think it's the right space for hearing it either. You know, well, exactly. Yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of different reasons. So mm. um, anyway, what were we talking about? So I was talking about conventions. Why was I talking about conventions? Uh, oh, this this idea of um, you know, developing group work in that way, in this way, sure. this sort of thing. But yeah, so yeah, so I, you know, I often kind of think about it, it's like this this idea, and it might be you know, it might be because people are lazy, but often it's because people are busy and there's not much money in it. Yeah, <laughs> that it's you know, time like, and that, energy, and, it, yeah. and it takes so much time and energy to that, work in that way. Yeah, that's right. And so the you know the the work and the practice necessarily has to be more conventional. Um, to make it work on a short time frame, on a shoestring budget, and all this kind of stuff. But then, yeah, if you if you want to do something that breaks more conventions, that goes outside of the the established um, practices and the, and the things that you know, like you know, like you think about like the kind of things if you if you went to you know uni to study music um, in whatever field that is, whether it's jazz or classical or composition or whatever, like you probably learnt most of the conventional skills because there's kind of an understanding 
that those are the the things that to be a professional you're expected to know and then mm. if you go beyond that well that's great artistically but there's gonna you know you're gonna have to put a lot of your time your own time and energy into it so mm. yeah i mean it's it's a tricky balance and as you say you know just as you get a little bit a little bit older you you have less time and and you know it's more demanded of you and fuck it's mm. more expensive in a lot of oh. different ways and, and well, also just organizing a rehearsal becomes like a huge admin task because everyone's busy you know it's like exactly a rehearsal six weeks away or something and yeah you know. well you know and, and so it's um yeah it does it does get really complicated so but you know but yeah if you want to if you want to make um <laughs> convention defying or you know convention bending music of whatever whatever form or style you want to want to say it is um then that's the kind of reality of it yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I th it's an interesting choice actually that being like maybe a more experimental artist it's it's not actually just an artistic choice it's also kind of a lifestyle choice mm. you know and and it's something i see a lot with people working in the experimental world you know um some people manage to find enough public funding and support yep. and and you know um, maybe are able to tap into festivals and yep. find performances in that way so that they actually can make a career out of making art all the time or maybe they do some yep. organization work and a bit of admin stuff and producing all sorts of things but but then um uh for people who don't go down that path it's like how do you actually leave enough space for your music practice to develop and not just sort of stagnate and continue as the thing that you learnt in your 20s you know? for sure i'm trying to work that out at the moment yeah <laughs> i think it's a, it's a it's a complex question as well you know and like if you if you do go into that um you really do the funding thing which you know i know people who do and that's you know good, good for them but it's it also yeah i don't mean it's to sound like criticism because it's not but you know i see they'll often you know have a bunch of ideas for projects and they'll have to pursue the ones that get funded mm. rather than yeah. you know if you're able to exist you know maybe less for long you know or outside of that or something then obviously there's other many other challenges that come with that making the time and making the money elsewhere but but you're going to have the freedom to just really pursue exactly it the is thing true that you most want to pursue. And, and and the other thing is that the types of projects that often get funded um you know the, those applications whether or not this truly reflects the artwork or not but mm. the applications themselves have to they have to meet certain um uh um, the, the word that's come to mind is kpis which is very yeah. corporate but actually you know funding bodies do uh, um behave and uh, they they have corporate policies and you know they're they're kind of For sure. organizations goals and um and and priorities and you do have to speak to them when you do those applications yeah. so um uh, and those app th those those policies might not um have as their first priority the development of an incredibly refined and esoteric drum practice you know <laughs> like um and you might be able to frame that in a way that does speak to those priorities but um but that in itself is is a challenge you know balancing what you want with what uh, a funding body wants or you Absolutely. know or, or presentation partners or what whoever it is yeah and there's probably you know people who some people have a you know just their personalities are more suited to, to doing that and feeling good about mm. that or feeling what you know some people feel worse about that or mm. naturally some people's practices may may align with you know whatever the policies or you know the priorities mm. of the time are and other people's wouldn't and so it's all you know you just kind of got to kind of find your own mm. your own way through it i think mm. I, I say as if i've found my own way <laughs> in any in any way shape or form but the answer uh, is to teach lots of kids <laughs>
unfortunately, it is at the moment. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, it works for some people. It works for me. Sort yeah, of, sort look, of. We, I know. wish I was less tired, but you know. Yeah, but yeah, look, <laughs> I feel like we're getting <laughs> getting into some into into a thicket. Yeah, that we may not yeah, want to get yeah. into. We we might actually move towards wrapping this up because I have a tennis yeah. lesson in fifteen minutes. <laughs> uh, so. Um, there's one question, actually two questions that I'll, I'll finish up with. The, the sure. first is, is one I ask all the, um, the interviewees, and that is, you know, music's pretty weird. Um, yep. How do you think, um, if you were sitting in the audience listening to that for the first time, how do you think you'd experience that? Huh. Is it bad to say I have no idea? I'm like I don't know. It's such <laughs> no, a. I think that's. I, I take. I, I kind of get the question, but I also kind of. I don't know. Can any of us truly? No, the question's unanswerable, and that's yeah. Part, that's part of why what, what I yeah, like about because it, it mean, stumps everyone. But I suppose the reason I ask it is because we get so close to our musical materials that often I think we actually lose. Um, we we lose perspective about actually what we do in a sense you know sure. like how how our our work comes across to someone who who isn't familiar with our concerns look i guess i think the only thing i can say which is not really answering your question but it's more of a what i hope people take from it um you know i i think what i hope people get from what i do is an understanding of like a really kind of personal offering. Um, you know, maybe it's just something I've been thinking about lately, but I've, I've seen a few things recently. And, and again, it's not meant to be a criticism at all, but I've seen a few things that lately that have been very polished mm. and pristine. And in the kind of polished and pristine nature of them, it's felt to me like there's a, an artifice between audience and performer. Mm, I, I absolutely and, uh, get that. Yeah. You might have even seen some of the same. Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so something, you know, I've been ruminating on is, is you know, I, I hope, you know, the nature of like, I'm just a guy with a drum kit and, and mm. I'm going to play some things for you and, and I don't want there to be this artifice of I'm some, you know, unknowable artist or something it's like i'm just mm. there and these are some things that i like and i want to share them with people mm. and i and i kind of you know i think about lots of the the performances i've seen of all different styles over the years that have moved me the most and that's a quality that i've always appreciated is this connection um so that's that's something i hope mm. comes across and yeah. i guess the other thing you know maybe more specifically um, is I, I hope that it's something really um, kind of visceral. Mm, um, it is. I mean, I, I experienced it that way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which yeah, yeah. Is, like, which is great. You know, which is rare. I look for that and I, it's exciting yeah. when it happens. And yeah, like, you know, I, I want, you know, like there to be moments where people really, this is kind of outside of the, the content we've been talking about for a lot of the time in the process, but I want there to be moments where it's like so quiet that, people are kind of le leaning in or, or, you know, whether it's maybe not quite on the, like the verge of being unhearable, but like just the detail of the, deli the delicate delicacy, delicateness of the sound. Um, but then also, you know, and I guess this is probably 
you know, people who there in February will, will attest to this, you know, there's moments where I'm like going as hard as I can mm. and physically pushing myself to my limits and yeah. sometimes playing, trying to play things that I physically cannot play. Um, yeah. Uh, and I, I was actually going to pick yeah. up on that, that, that like the level of, of challenge that you set yourself means that the audience does actually get drawn into that kind of, um, intensity you know that yeah. that kind of incredibly concentrated energy where you're just trying to yeah. meet these demands yeah you know? um i guess the other thing i mean i'm kind of rambling now but you know i kind of have this memory of um you know a long time ago um like i mentioned earlier i studied with um simon barker and he has a kind of great love and knowledge and has studied deeply traditional korean percussion music and he gave me a, a couple of recordings and I have this kind of strong memory of listening to them and having this kind of sense of like, I have no fucking idea what's going on. Like this is, there's no framework in my, in my, um, in, in my musical understanding at that point to, to kind of make sense of this, but it's, you know, it's really powerful and it's really, you know, there's like the, I guess the rhythmic element, you know, there's really strong rhythms that I can kind of feel pulse even if i can't necessarily tap my foot or dance to it and it's, things are changing and it's and that you know i guess maybe one of the reasons i've always loved rhythm as a, as a musical element so much is the the ability for for it to kind of feel like you might be sitting still but it feels like it's kind of pushing you around you know mm, mm. um so that's that's probably another thing that i you know hope is in there in part is this kind of you know this i guess you know link, linked into my interest in kind of in embodiment as a the process for making music is i hope that there's kind of a, a physical feeling in it together with yeah. yeah the kind of visceral nature and i don't know these are these are the kind of elements that i hope mm. <laughs> come across yeah. yeah well they certainly do um one final question for you and you have about two minutes okay um but it is a quick one and that is just is do you have anything coming up that you'd like to promote it could be a, an event or a concert it could even be a website or an instagram or something like that um I'm getting married in November and yeah, uh, yeah. no one's invited. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I'm um, sorry to hear that. <laughs> uh, oh, I feel, I feel bad. I should organize something before I came here, but no, I think things are, things are kind of quiet. I think I'm, I'm still recovering from the pandemic mm. <laughs> and this is kind of a period where I'm trying to take stock of where things are at and plot, plot the next move. Mm. So, um, I know that's, you know, missing a golden opportunity, but... Not really, that's you know. I, I think a lot of people are... Um, yeah, e even... I, I think of the work I was making in the pandemic. I got I got some things done, mm. but... Um, uh, but now that we're out again, the working methods that I'd gotten used to mm. in the pandemic are now not really the ones that I would go for now. You know, yeah, just life yeah. has changed again, yep. and the routines have changed, so... I get that. Um, if anyone did want to follow you on Instagram, how would they do that? Uh, Orange Jimmy. Classic. Instagram. Yeah. Um, there's some weird photos and there's some videos of me playing drums and maybe I'll put Great. up maybe I'll put up some of um, Afterglow to to tie in. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, well, thanks for talking. No worries. Thanks for having me. It's been a good one. Thanks for listening to my interview with James McLean. And for the record, I don't appreciate having um, the veil lifted on the fact that I was wearing a dressing gown, you know, in, in my own home, which I have every right to do. I'll have James know. Um, 
on a more serious note, though, it was uh, it was so valuable for me to hear a little bit more about um, uh, how James had been thinking about his recent solo music, and in particular how it was informed by the the photography practices of Trent Park and uh, other street photographers that James was interested in. I think that idea of um, conceptualizing your practice around um, processes and ways of working from other disciplines is a really interesting way of shining a light on your own practice and perhaps seeing it with greater clarity than than you had been before you know perhaps even recognizing ways that you can um, make an adjustment to your way of thinking that can open up new possibilities um, and you know that's what we're all trying to do in our in our music right um, to to find new approaches and um, you know new ways of, of getting inspired so very appreciative to James uh, for sharing that. Thanks for listening and please tune into the next episode of the New North Podcast, which will be with trumpet player and electronic musician Ruben Lewis.